Hello, and welcome to Calamity, a podcast about natural and not-so-natural disasters. In each episode, we examine a catastrophic event from world history. We are your hosts, the Kuhlman Sisters. I'm Jema. I'm Jillian. And I'm Caitlin. And today's Calamity takes us to South Carolina. We are going to be learning about the Graniteville train crash and chlorine spill of 2005. Okay. This is one that was requested by a listener, John Byers. There's your shout out. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a really interesting story. It's not one that I had ever heard of before. And um, that's surprising because it's actually the largest chlorine spill in American history. And I think... They transport um, chlorine by train? Yeah. And like a million other hazardous things, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'll tell you all about it. How's that sound? Yeah. Sounds good. All right. So we're down in South Carolina and the train company we're talking about is Norfolk Southern. So they had, let's see, it's January 5th, 2005. And they had a, a local train that was going through, it was going to go through, uh, well, go to Graniteville, basically, and stop um, right kind of in the middle of town. There's a, a siding. You know what that is? Like where uh-huh. you can kind of pull your train over mm, off yeah. the main track and onto the side. Yeah. Um, at, at a place called the Avondale Mill, which is like the main employer in Graniteville. It was this, I don't know, they used chlorine and a number of other chemicals to make something not really important to the story (laughs) but i read a lot of different sources and not a single one explained to me what avondale mill actually did um anyway that train uh just something a little unusual about it was the conductor and the engineer on that train i'm gonna label it um it was norfolk southern train p22 I am fighting with a cat again. <laughs> Out of control. Um, sorry, everyone. Okay. So that, yeah, the conductor and the engineer were off that day. And so those positions were filled from a list of like standby people. And that, I'm not saying that uh, that definitely had an effect on this, but it seems like it might have. You didn't have the regular people in charge. So they pulled up in, in, during the day. They pulled up there at the Avondale Mill on the siding. They parked the train. I assume it has a park setting. I know lots <laughs> about trains. They, they put the brakes on and, and they locked them. Yeah, that's right. They have a brakeman because he is a character in the story too. Um, obviously, when you go to use a siding, they, there's a railroad switch so that the tracks uh-huh. automatically oh, yep. take you sure, one yeah. way instead of another. And when this train pulled in, it looks like what happened was the, the crew, uh, no one on the crew checked to see that the switch got switched back from the siding to the main approach. The main thoroughfare. Okay. I'm sorry. The main right. line operation, it's called. Uh, technically... So, wait, uh- are we talking about behind them after they'd pulled onto the siding or in front of them as they're, once they get started again to get back on the main behind them behind them. Okay. Yep. So, um, and it was the brakeman's job, I suppose. And, and after this crash, he did say that he wasn't a hundred percent sure that he did that. He threw the switch. He may have made a mistake. I mean, it's pretty obvious that is definitely what happened because a train ran into them. So they oh, go okay. ahead and they leave for the day. Cause it's the end of their shift. That train is going to be parked there overnight. It'll leave the next day. So although mm-hmm. that team leaves the area around seven 30, well, no, a couple of the people are probably still on the train because they maybe live there or stay on the train overnight. Does that make sense, Caitlin? No, no, it doesn't. Not at all. Um, <laughs> no, but the engineer and the conductor were definitely on the train at two in the morning because they were definitely on the train. Anyway, well, for whatever here, here's what I know. Okay, here's what I do know. 
um, that the crew can stay on the train for a l many hours at a time if their train in their cargo doesn't have priority and they need to get uh, a different train on the same track has more priority than them. Mm -hmm. They could sit for maybe four hours at a time, just waiting for the other train to get by them before they get back on the main train, uh, the main track and continue going. Mm -hmm. So in one sense, um, it does make sense for them to be like sitting around for hours at a time. Uh, but definitely not just like hanging out overnight for no reason. So there's that. Caitlin, our residence train expert. And the brake man is on the train when he to throw the switch? Uh, that works? I don't know. Okay. Uh, it sounds to me like it's a pretty manual process. I know that there's not any kind of like alarm or alert or signal that would show you. Like you have to like look at the thing and, de and determine if it's in the right position. Hmm. Um, mm -hmm. because one of the recommendations after this was like, why don't we install a light or some kind of warning? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, which many, many train tracks do have a light. This, this little town just didn't have one, um, at this particular little, little spot. So, okay. What train was, what was that train? What was P22 doing? Like what, what was it transporting something or? I believe it was either transporting something to the mill or was going to take something away from the mill that the next oh. day or whenever it took off okay so it's that's why it was at that siding i mean clearly other trains needed to pass it too but it had pulled off into the avondale mill siding okay so that so it was, it was like it right there there's like a loading there to, dock and stuff to service the mill that that was in yeah. the town okay yeah so then um everything's fine and everyone goes to sleep and it's a quiet little town. And then at 2.38 in the morning. Um, so now we're at like, we're January 6th, technically. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Norfolk Southern Freight Train 192 approaches Graniteville. And it's not intending to stop there. It is going like 50 miles per hour, approximately. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's supposed to just zip right through. But the the engineer does whoever's driving it the engineer <laughs> does see i guess he spots that the switch is in the incorrect spot and he attempts to break like an emergency mm -hmm. break the train but there's not enough from the moment you can notice it and react there's mm -hmm. not enough time or, or even distance to stop a train of that length and weight yeah. and all that i think it well, maybe, maybe they have those intersections. I bet the intersection was lit, you know, with like a, yeah. a street lamp of some kind. It probably but, was. Um, you, you'd have to be close enough for actual visual recognition to be able to see that, uh, you know, it's not like you can see it far off in the distance, like, oh, on the horizon, I see that the track is off. Like, you'd have to be really close, like within some sort of matter of feet, I think. So, yeah, he, they didn't have a chance, like, but, but they did attempt to break. And then mm -hmm. um, it didn't work. So 192 diverts to the siding and mm -hmm. it crashes right into P22. Mm -hmm. um, in the crash, uh, 192 uh, experiences the most derailment. Like P22, I think, is mostly pushed forward. And like one of their freight cars is derailed, like maybe the last one or something. But 192, the one that was zooming in fast, they both of their engines were derailed and 16 of their 42 freight cars were derailed. Yeah. So if you look wow. at pictures, there's um, quite a few like aerial pictures from the next day. Um, and you, I mean, it's just train, these train, these freight cars are just scattered everywhere. It's like a pile of Legos or something. It, it looks pretty scary. Hmm. Mm -hmm. um, made a very loud noise, woke. I mean, I think a lot of the people in the town maybe thought it was, thunder or something but um there was like a really loud crashing noise and people did start sort of calling 911 to see what was going on the the real thing that the main thing that was happening is one of the cars was loaded with 90 tons of chlorine uh i believe it was liquid chlorine but it ruptured and it became gas so they, they, the car released 60 tons of chlorine gas. Hmm. 
So that's nice. most most of the chlorine in that car um, kind of I don't quickly leaked out in some way. The rest was they were like the other thirty percent they were able to like or thirty tons rather they were able to like somehow recollect. Hmm. I don't know. Uh, chlorine gas is not something you want to be walking around in or breathing. Well, I have questions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I only know of chlorine as being a uh, ingredient in a swimming pool. <laughs> and, or, yeah, like, I don't, I, I know it as a liquid. I didn't know it could be a gas. Science is not my strong suit. Um, isn't it, it's, so, it's in swimming pools because it's some kind of, um, uh, like a cleaning agent. Clean, it's yeah. Like to, it's um, like in bleach, like chlorine bleach. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. To keep, I you know, know why it's in there. Yeah. But then, but how does a, a liquid thing, I mean, it was it transported in the truck, sorry, in the train as a gas, not as a liquid? I'm not a hundred percent sure, Kate. Okay. I feel like it was a liquid and then became a gas after the crash or during the crash, but I wouldn't want to swear to that. All yeah. of our scientist listeners might get angry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, in any case, once it's, once the crash has happened, it's definitely a gas. It's, uh -huh. you can kind of see it. it. It did sort of, there was like a mist. Uh, people reported a kind of a mist. Um, like a fog and chlorine gas is heavier than air. So it stays low to the ground, mm. which makes it extra dangerous when there's a leak of this sort. So it's like our, it's like our Nios Lake um, episode. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it does eventually kind of float away or whatever, but initially it's going to hang out. It's going to almost like the way that water travels downhill chlorine gas is going to travel downhill. So um, that becomes an issue when the town is going to evacuate. Um, if you don't know that chlorine stays in the low parts of town, then you don't know to get up high. Uh-huh. No. And I don't know how many people in the world just kind of have that knowledge at their fingertips. I didn't know it until I read this article. So uh, there are, I'm going to go into more specifics, but just to give you the, um, overview there were this uh event had nine deaths uh no one died in the train crash really all the deaths yep all the deaths were attributed to the chlorine and in fact it was i believe the engineer i better give you the actual information instead of just trying to make it up uh the engineer and the do 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 do, do Conductor? Yes, I think. Uh, they both survived the crash, but then died of chlorine gas inhalation. It's like, it, it totally does like a burning, like it's going to burn and blister your mouth and throat Ooh, and lungs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it can blister your skin and stuff too, but really the part, what's killing you is, is going to be breathing it in. The inside. So I know that you might not know this piece because you kind of focused on the um, the, the chlorine um, in the air portion of this disaster. But if I'm imagining a train hitting the back of another train, I'm thinking that first engine train of the second, um, you know, this rear ending the first is mm -hmm. going to be kind of obliv obliterated. Um so I'm surprised that the engineer and the conductor survived that. D do you know if they jumped out? I don't know. I don't think okay. anyone knows because they ended up dying. Okay. So uh, it was so they, were, they, they, they had evacuated the crash site, but were found nearby. Um, okay. Having died of chlorine gas inhalation. But I think, Caitlin, the a train engine is a really giant hunk of metal. Um. I'm not saying you can't die in one, but it, I don't, it doesn't get obliterated without mm -hmm. like a bomb or something. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that's, that's the case. It's just, it's a really giant chunk of metal and, and somehow they, they made it through. Okay. Um, let's see. Nine deaths. And 
let me tell you a little bit about the people who died. I've got the engineer, um, and then uh, there's several employees of Avondale Mill. Now, most of the employees at the mill are daytime employees, so there's a very much just a skeleton crew overnight. So that was lucky. Um, however, the people who were there had it the worst. So there were two men who were employees of Avondale Mills who were later found, it took a while to find them. They were found in a wooded area that was kind of outside the mill. And what it looks like happened is they had made an attempt to run and they just uh-huh. couldn't, couldn't outrun, outrun the cloud of gas. Mm-hmm. And then there was, let's see, another Avondale Mills employee was found Uh, just a few feet inside the entrance to the mill. Oh, that's a wooded area. This guy was found at the loading dock of the mill. Um, Another man was found in the, in the break room and another man was found in an office. And then there was um, a, like a big rig truck, a semi truck that was parked and it was just kind of happened to be parked in the area and the driver was sleeping inside mm-hmm. uh, overnight and he was found. I mean, he, I don't even know if he woke up. He was found dead in his sleeper cab. Mm-hmm. And then another man who lived in a home nearby uh, on the main street of the town, he was also found dead several days later or maybe not days later, but it took a while to find him too because he, he was still inside his house. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then I believe there was one other guy who died much, much later, but definitely from chlorine gas problems. So um, a ton of people were also injured. The numbers in these different sources are all over the place. Um, mm-hmm. I believe the number on the Wikipedia article says there's 250 injuries. I read an article from the um, the Aiken Standard newspaper, which is a local newspaper there, and they said there was like 2,400, which is wow. way more. Um, <laughs> and still another paper was saying there were like 700 people were treated in the hospital, but only 90 were admitted overnight. So I, I'm not really sure how many people were specifically injured mm-hmm. and affected. Um, certainly some people may have gone to the hospital for treatment that didn't necessarily need it. They just wanted to get checked out because yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't really clear what the symptoms were. I mean, you people were being told that there had been this gas spill and not knowing what signs or symptoms to look for. They weren't sure if they were affected. So that's a bit of a problem. Do you know, uh, do you know how many, um, did you read anything that said how many parts per million was like in the air or anything? Yes. Yes. Oh gosh. Yeah. Um, here, this is crazy though. So the EPA came in and set up, I kind of have a long list of things that went wrong but, because things always go wrong in a disaster, but the EPA came in and set up a chlorine monitor at the crash site. Mm -hmm. And then it, it maxed out at 1.5 parts per million. And so they never had any idea how much there was in the air because their meter maxed out just like in the Chernobyl story. Yeah. Remember they had those like counters to count the radiation and it was like, Oh, we must have this much because that's the top of the, (laughs) so i'm i'm looking up chlorine because i was interested in like what the you know what how much you can have yeah and so it says it's detectable with measuring devices in concentrations as low as 0.2 parts per million and by smell at three parts per million um but coughing and vomiting may occur at 30 parts per million and lung damage at 60 parts per million and well, it's definitely up there then. A thousand parts per million can be fatal after a few deep deep breaths of the gas. Um, wow. It looks like maybe there's a couple, there's a different kind of. Um, oh, 10 parts per million is, is when it's immediately dangerous to life and health. 
Hmm. So the EPA's monitor was useless. Uh, it, it does only went say, up to just to clarify, it does say that when used at specific levels for water disinfection, so this is why it's, the reaction of chlorine with the water is not a major concern for human health. So it's a little vague to me why it's okay to put it in swimming pools, but apparently when it's in water, um, it's not as big of a deal. Uh, it's when it's in that gas form that you're literally breathing. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, right. It's probably not good for you to swallow it, I would guess. But um, don't drink chlorine. But I feel people. like I definitely smell it at a swimming pool. Um, yeah. And it says, well, it says you can smell it at three parts per million, but I guess it doesn't really do damage till 10. But anyway, anyway, I just thought that was, yeah. Um, yeah, can't be good so, for you. No, no, definitely. So um, about uh, 5,400 residents were evacuated. And the people who did uh, evacuate, they were um, not able to go back to their homes for like 9 to 14 days while there was wow. hazmat cleanup there. So they, they had to stay What do you do out of the to area. clean up a, a gas? Do you have like a little vacuum cleaner for the air? Mm-hmm. I think that's it. Scrubbers yep. or something? Mops. But it's like out in nature. <laughs> like how do you it's not contained in Maybe anything. Maybe you get giant fans and just blow it around. <laughs> <laughs> Makes no sense. I have no idea how you clean up chlorine gas bills. I apologize. That wasn't part of my research. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. Very strong bleach smell. Burning sensation in the mouth and throat. And... Oh, this is the other thing. Ga- the gas also is just really detrimental to a lot of things other than people and our lungs and throat. Um, it d- just really badly destroyed wiring in like all the houses and buildings in the oh, town. Yeah. I think because it's just it's the, we're just corrosive or something. Oh, so yeah. um, anything electronic was ruined. Like people even reported that if, you know if they were in kind of close to the affected area. They couldn't use their cell phones because the chlorine gas af- did something to the cell phone functioning. Um, so electronics don't fare well. And then, of course, it killed trees, plants, shrubs, birds and insects, uh, and fish. And it contaminated all the water. Hmm. I mean, killed them dead, like dead, dead. Wow. Uh, I think it was ended up being part of a settlement. I think the railroad eventually had to like restock the local lakes and streams because every single fish was gone. And mm. people talked about how eerie it was afterwards because all the birds were dead and all the insects were dead. Wow. Mm-hmm. It just, it took a while for that to come back. Was there okay, something wrong with the tank that held the chlorine? I mean, shouldn't those be stress tested to like withstand a certain amount of, impact yeah i did not see that as a um a reported issue that any of the researchers Hmm. or like the ntsb uh the national transportation safety board came up with after so Hmm. i don't think that was i mean i i suppose there probably are regulations but i don't know what they are Um, it doesn't seem to be an issue here but let me let me go through Mm -hmm. some of the things that went wrong um because I think that's what makes this one really interesting. It's not just, oh, there was a train crash and a, a gas spill. Well, that's um, interesting enough, but if there's more to it, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's see. Uh, the, in, the initial emergency responders from the local fire department, um, they responded right away to the train crash, and they didn't have personal protection gear. What? Um, what? Because I think... You don't expect there to be chlorine gas. They you didn't, know, I don't they know. didn't they just, have it or they just didn't bring it? They right. didn't. They weren't wearing it. Yeah. Okay. So that really compromised their response. They wound up with like blisters on their lungs. And uh, and then really once the chief figured out that, oh, this is a gas leak, then of course he had to pull all of his responders back yeah. um, and try to get them out of the way of the of those spill but uh, it also took them a long time to figure out what it was 
I mean, it smelled really strongly of bleach. So I think you could kind of guess chlorine, but it wasn't like labeled on the truck anywhere, the, the freight car. Um, I mean, I'm sure it was labeled with like some, you know, Mr. Yuck stickers or right, something. Right. But I see, I see but, things uh, like that on the highway sometimes, you know, different yeah. oxygen containing whatever or, you know, flammable something or other. Right. So I'm sure it had warnings like that on it, but it, it would, there's nothing on it that specifically said, oh, this is chlorine. Mm. And even if, even once they did know it was chlorine, they didn't, it took them another, you know, few hours to get the information like, oh, what, what do we do when there's a chlorine spill? Like, do we get people out of the way? Do we rinse people off? Do we evacuate yeah. or do we sounds- shelter in place or do we have people stay <laughs> indoors or... It sounds like they were all just as confused as we were at the beginning yeah. of the podcast, where it's like, what? It's in gas form? What do you do? What? <laughs> so, just Yeah, and it's, it's two in the morning, three in the morning now. Mm-hmm. You don't know who you're going to even call and ask. And, I mean, there are, there are national protocols for this kind of thing. It turns out you can, uh, you can call, uh, it's recommended you call industry leaders for different chemicals. Um, and there's even a train, there's like a system that sounds really cool. And it's, uh, I've never heard of it before, but it sounds awesome. It's called O-R-E-I-S, O-R-I-S-E. O-R-I-S-E. It's a software system that uh, provides emergency responders with information for dealing with the rescue and response to operations on railroads and highways. Hmm. So um, it provides real-time information about the chemical contents of rail cars and trucks on the road wow. that have been involved in an accident. Um, it came out of some kind of big um, event that happened in Houston, Texas in 1995. So it was developed hmm. so that you can just, if you have this software, you can like put in a code or some information about that car or truck mm-hmm. and it'll tell you in real time what that thing is carrying but they didn't use that so that didn't do them any good they didn't, Still, they I didn't love have access exists. to it or they didn't know to use it or they didn't i don't think they knew to use it okay um let's see civilians were mostly on their own when it came to evacuating uh there were definitely some uh some people who just like evacuated on their own because it smelled bad and they got out of the way. But when it came to actually evacuating the city, that actually took several more hours again because they, get, they weren't sure how to handle the spill. And so initially they had a, rewar- a reverse 911 system where you can send out a message to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and the message they sent out was to shelter in place, which is mm. specifically what you shouldn't do. And in fact, there were a few cases of people who were trapped not trapped really, but they were in the mill, uh, in the danger zone, but still alive. Who were like on the phone with nine one one, and the nine one one operators, because they were told to say so, said shelter in place, shelter like you just have to wait for rescue, shelter in place and wait for rescue. And that was not really the right thing mm-hmm. to do. They should have. I mean, at that point, the rescuers weren't even trying to get in there because they couldn't breathe either. So, I have a question. Um, because this is still three, two a.m., two, three, four. Um, if I didn't wake up because of the sound, I, and if I didn't wake up because my phone went off, because you know the alarm, you know the the reverse nine one one system, I could still be asleep, right? Yeah. Like, were there? Were, was it like just the whole town is up, everybody's out, and like, or was no. it just some some people were still sleeping? Some people were definitely still sleeping. Okay. I sleep hard, so I just wanted to ask. <laughs> if you can sleep through a train crash and your phone ringing, then yeah, you could have still been asleep. Um, let's see. Do, 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 I told you about the EPA's chlorine monitor. That didn't work out. Okay, here, this part's interesting too. The head of the local volunteer fire, part, fire department, who was the incident commander on the scene for this event, he was also an employee of the railroad. Oh. And, and the railroad ended up issuing most of the statements to the press and they really like locked it down and they would shut down press conferences if there, if 
the reporters started to ask hard questions. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not really clear if having an employee of the railroad as the incident commander is sort of a conflict, conflict, Mm -hmm. I would say. Yeah. Because, yeah, the, the railroad worked really hard from minute one to like minimize their fault in this. Or at least looking like they were at fault. So that is a little shady. Let's see what else. Okay. Uh, The area of evacuation was not sufficient. So people were evacuated out of the town proper, but it actually, um, what the EPA says in their like pages and pages of regulations about this, which nobody in the town had read. um, And I don't blame them for that. Um, But it says the release of chlorine from a rail car can be catastrophic up to 14 miles away. Wow. And they they evacuated like a mile. Mm. And then people evacuated out of that area. And I mean, some people evacuated a mile away and then were like, wait, I can still smell bleach. So then they went a little further out. Mm. Mm -hmm. But uh, it wasn't a big enough area. And then, um, as I mentioned, when you are trying to plan an orderly evacuation, orderly and safe evacuation when there's been a spill like this, what what should have happened I, in the ideal situation is you find a route out of town that doesn't go into a bunch of valleys or in low-lying oh. areas, stays, gets people up and above as quickly as possible. Mm. I don't know what the landscape around Graniteville is like, really, but um, that wasn't that wasn't done. It was a free for all. It was you know, everyone was getting out on their own, and and nobody knew until much later that they needed to stay out of the valleys. Mm-hmm. So, the medical community also didn't know much about chlorine gas. I mean, initially, as people are coming, people who are like really badly hurt, you can they can treat, you know, burns in the lungs and the throat. That that's kind of just you can easily do that. But if someone's coming in just kind of coughing and with a sore throat, um, mm-hmm. people were diagnosed with with. Uh, pneumonia and some other weird things like not every hospital in the area had all the information and even knew what signs to look for or how to treat it yeah Um, and again it's just it's such a specific thing I mean if it wasn't chlorine and it was some other random chemical then I wouldn't know anything about it because I've only read about chlorine today (laughs) so (laughs) like I it's it is a lot to expect people to know that said it take a google you know it's not going to take you that long to Google something. 2005, I suppose, wasn't yeah, quite as good. Maybe didn't have all those answers. In small town South Carolina. Yeah, but... Siri didn't didn't know all that stuff yet. Oh, no. She was not helpful in 2005. <laughs> Let's see. The railroad definitely ended up providing, like, they handed out vouchers and things for people to go to hotels. Um, it wasn't a very easy system that they set up, but, but basically the railroad definitely tried to help the town. And in the end, they also kind of made like quickly and quietly arranged settlements with a lot of the people who were affected um, cash settlements. And they helped pay to like rewire the houses and things like that to get people in, Um, which isn't shady. It, I mean, that's what you'd want a responsible company to do but it True. also has like just a tinge of like cover-up like mm-hmm. trying yeah. to make it it's not very know, transparent like i think when people this ended up being thrown out in court but they, when they were getting their voucher to um it was like a, a check to compensate them for something the check had an attachment where you like signed away you know, you're, it was like a, dis, you know, non-disclosure or something right. like you yeah. weren't allowed to, mm-hmm. to complain anymore, which that was quickly thrown out by a judge. And they're like, you can't make people do that when you're, when it's like, there's, it's the middle of the night and they're trying to evacuate to a hotel yeah. and you're asking them to sign this thing to, in order to get a place to sleep. So that's just not legal. But um, yeah, I, so I don't want to be too down on the railroad because I, they do, they did do what they needed to do, but I don't know. 
that's one of the reasons that I think it wasn't a very big national story is because the, the railroad kind of quickly tried to deal with all the media and tried to keep it a small story by making everyone in the town at least moderately happy. Uh-huh. So take that as you will. The other thing, the government, uh, no government, the governor of South Carolina was Mark Sanford at the time, mm-hmm. and he totally uh, went and did a, a FEMA request. Um, this is totally the kind of disaster that FEMA would normally re- respond to. Yeah, Thousands mm-hmm. of people evacuated, a dangerous gas, nine people dead. Yeah. I mean, you know, effect, you know, affects the land and the yeah. water safety and air safety. But the FEMA, and this was when it was under Michael Brown, um, who, this is the same year as Hurricane Katrina. Ooh. So he was the one that Bush said, oh, Brownie's doing a heck of a job. Um, that happened much later in the year because this is January and that was later. But um, anyway, so the, I don't know that his tenure at FEMA was the best, but they basically said, no, that this probably doesn't apply. Hmm. And I, that is, again, another reason why I think it didn't make national headlines because in the end, it, there wasn't a federal response. Hmm. So it um, kind of just made local news. Wow. Yeah. Let me see what else I want to tell you. I'm get I'm getting to the end of my factoids, but let's see. Okay. Um, electronic signals we've talked about. Oh, this one is interesting. The the NTSB. Well, it's interesting if you're a nerd like me. The NTSB <laughs> has a. Their recommendation is that hazardous materials on a train should be in the rear one quarter of the train. Because yeah. trains are likely going to hit oh, something right. in the forward position. And if if this unless train car was at the back, unless you're what? Unless you're being rear-ended. Yes, right, if the trains had been, had been <laughs> Should we put it in the middle? Maybe we should put it in the middle. <laughs> Um, in any case, they the they think it should go in the rear one quarter of the train. They think if you're carrying hazardous materials, you should have to have to follow reduced speeds, and just in general, the length of that those trains that carry hazardous materials should be reduced. Those are just recommendations from the NTSB, and that's for all trains everywhere. But it's not very business friendly. Like the railroads are trying to make right. money, and they. they the more freight they can throw on a train, the longer the train, the better uh, for them financially. And um, they don't have a lot of, you know, to stay on schedule, organizing a train according to like alphabetical order of what it's carrying is not realistic. So uh, I think a lot of times they'll just, you know, you pick up a few cars here and there and then they just, you just put them on at the end. <laughs> right. So it's not going to end up very organized. If, if anything, I think like weight comes into it because if you have um, like a variety of really light cars and then a variety of really heavy cars, um, where they're placed together might affect how you um, go uphills and downhills, like based on your velocity, it could like speed you or, or slow you down. And so, but yeah, like, like you might be on one train route that has five different stops and you unload three cars and load five cars and unload six and then load three. And then it's just like, it doesn't, it gets so messy along the way. They lose cars all the time. They just, it'll be sitting somewhere on a side, a side, a siding. Until the owner of the, of the, the thing it's transporting it really raises a stink and said, go find my stuff. I'm paying you money. And then they finally uh-huh. go find it. Like, oh, I'm sorry. It was over here in like this mile post, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's hopefully it wasn't like livestock or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, what else was I going to say about that though? I think I lost my train of thought. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so uh, the number one thing that kind of came out of this or that we think, I don't know if I say we, that they think, whoever they are, would most have helped in this crisis is just for there to have been a quicker and broader understanding of what the train was hauling. Because yeah. the 
the engineers who were who were pulling the train didn't know what it was and they both survived the crash and then they died later uh escaping from the train maybe they would have run faster i don't know maybe they i don't know if they could have gotten away safe or not but um they didn't know what was in there and then uh emergency response workers didn't know what was in there they went right in there without their protective gear and then had to back up and that it just it slowed down their response time and the people who were evacuating didn't know what it was they took a long it took many hours before that kind of information was was being given out um so just that like that's the if we just could more easily recognize what what is in there and then of course you also secondarily need to know what to do about it but right yeah um i remembered my question jillian or my my other thought that i had it it was to do with the speed of the train um I don't know how big of town this is, but normally there's there are speed limits, um, and normally through a town it has to be I think 25 or 30 miles per hour max. So uh, it was heading through town at 50. I'm surprised, but I don't know. You know, obviously the maybe it was just out of town or right before town, and it was like slowing down or speeding up or something like that. But well, maybe I mean it was right there at the mill. It was pretty darn close to Main Street. Hmm. But I do, um, I, on one hand, I wonder if it was actually legitimately speeding, but I, I know that if it was breaking that law, that it would have, it would have come up in your research. So it must not have been. Yeah. No one, no one mentioned that except to say that they didn't have time to slow down mm -hmm. from the, as fast as they were going to, mm -hmm. to a stop. Okay. Okay. The disaster cost between 30 and 40 million. Wow. Uh, those costs were primarily borne by the railroad and the insurance companies. Um, the railroads are insured, but also the Avondale Mill, um, they bore some of the costs, but the mill, so the mill employed most of the people in the town and in one, just in one way or another, or businesses that supported the mill. And so mm -hmm. it couldn't immediately reopen. And then even once, I mean, I think it did reopen, but for less than a year, they closed again. The whole business went under um, in 2006. So uh, that town lost its primary livelihood, hmm. which is very sad. Mm -hmm. and, and all its fish. And all its fish and its little birdies. Um, and the Norfolk Southern Railway Company, they paid a big penalty to well in they had violated the clean water act by spilling stuff in the water and a few other they had a few other like clean water act violations and some other environmental violations so they did have to pay almost four million dollars to and i guess what happens when you pay a fine like that it goes into a federal trust fund that is specifically there to pay for oil spills and things like that, um, chemical spills. So um, there's like a liability, an oil spill liability trust fund, and that's where all those fines go into so that then the federal government can use that money to clean up the mess. Mm -hmm. So that is the story uh, as far as I know. Jama, do you see anything more that in your... Anything you're looking at? No, I just, I just so terrible that they had this freak accident with the trains and then the, the, the company has to close. Like they're not even able to, yeah. um, the, the guy was saying, I like, I don't know, the owner or somebody was saying, you know, we're able to weather the, they had something to do with textiles, something to do with the textile market. Um, you know, we're prepared to weather the storm of global competition. What we weren't prepared for was such an event as this derailment. It was totally beyond our control. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's happened, yeah. in, you know, where I live, there's been, um, you know, major employers that shut down and. Um, that can be really hard on it, a community. Oh yeah. Really, really, really bad. So. 
you know, and, yeah. and in that community, it sounds, it was a small community and that they, this was pretty much the one thing they were all dependent on. So yeah, that's just, yeah. And I think there was initially some hope that when the mill got their insurance payout, they'd be able to restart. But the, I believe the owners also said, that, you know, that didn't make them entirely whole and it wasn't, they, they just got out of the business entirely. So that was really unfortunate. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't blame them either because they have to make an economic decision based on, yeah. Really, I don't know. It's just a terrible situation. <laughs> I don't want to blame anyone. Oh, and I especially wanted to say that I'm not in any way, I hope I didn't make it sound like I was blaming first responders uh, for not wearing the right gear or not oh, responding course. fast enough yeah. or not, because like it was a confusing situation in the middle of the night. Um, and I am sure that I wouldn't have done any better. So no, you think, um, you know, you, you hear train wreck and you're like, there are people there, there are bodies there. We have to go get people out, uh, you know, who have been thrown from the cars. You don't necessarily, and of course they're professional responders. Maybe they have the training to think through like, oh, what about the cargo? But yeah, I, I guess think they were, they were a volunteer force, but yes, they definitely had training. Yeah. They, they probably would have thought through a lot further than I, but I, I just right off the cuff, I'm thinking we got to get those people out of there and see what kind of condition they're in. And I, I wouldn't really be thinking about hazardous material. So, yeah, not right off the bat. So that's the story of Graniteville and their 2005 train crash. An interesting one. Chemicalsville. Yeah. I'm sorry I don't know more. I didn't know more about the science of chlorine gas. No, I really <laughs> wish I'd researched that a little more. But uh, it's yeah. not one that Luckily I realized was so deadly since we swim in it all the time. But apparently, yeah, not, yeah. not good for you. Yeah, definitely. Don't uh, don't drink it. Don't breathe it. Stay away from bleach unless you're doing laundry. <laughs> that is my recommendation to all of our listeners. <laughs> well do you want to tell do you want to tell us a little bit about the resources you uh used then yes definitely um let's see there was an article in the journal of the transportation research board which i'm sure is a very exciting journal uh, <laughs> and that was called uh, train wreck and chlorine spill in graniteville south carolina transportation effects and lessons in small town capacity for no notice evacuation by A.E. Dunning and Jennifer L. Oswald. And then, uh, let's see, an article, uh, let's see, I read some research from the Aiken Standard, which again, that's a local paper, uh, articles written by Trip Gerardo. And, and, um, this one is from the Emergency Planning for Chemical Spills website, but I don't have the address actually on this printed out page. I will send it to you and we can post it. Okay. And then, of course, there's the Wikipedia page, which gives kind of an overview. And it's, it's pretty good as well. But um, Does it have visuals? Yes. And it is worth taking a quick look at that because it's interesting how the, the train cars all were scattered became there. Like, became Legos? Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's what I got. Well, thank you for sharing. It's definitely a, an odd one. I mean, we learned a lot, but, <laughs> um, and, and I think it was especially interesting for me having done the exploding lake episode where there was the gas that, you know, was underwater and then it went into the air and then it went down the valleys. Mm-hmm. And, it, and I think, I think, that chlorine can operate the same way. I had no idea. Um, well, one of the things that stuck out to me is like, you know, I'm not part of city planning and nor do I have any aspirations to be, but to have a really good city um, disaster plan, you'd think, okay, what are our evacuation routes or where are our shelters going to be or what are our uh, methods of communication? But not only do you have to have a evacuation route, but you'd have to know, well, in this case, evacuation route A, and in this Mm -hmm. case, evacuation route B, depending on 
if something is in the valleys or in, in the mountains. Like yeah. I just never realized that you'd have to be that detailed. You just can't prepare for every single eventuality. Right. So prepare as broadly as we can, I suppose, is what we try to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, one last question, Jillian. Did anything, um, I mean, this was 2005, and they already had really great regulations by then um, and, and guidelines for how to conduct business. Uh, was there anything that changed as an outcome uh, any rule that was revised based on this disaster? Not that I read. Mm-mm. Okay. I mean, like I always like, like in any case, I would like to hope that that other local people or train or organizations or train companies or cities were paying attention enough to kind of learn from, learn from mm-hmm. a few mistakes that were made, but um, there wasn't any particular legislation mm-hmm. or anything like that. And especially because this one was kept so quiet, um, you know, it didn't make national news necessarily. So it it may not have had the same um, uh, reach that some of our other disasters have had. So very true. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. I loved it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I've been in total disaster mode the last few days because I went to the library and I just, I found, stumbled upon the disaster section and it was just like <laughs> book after book after book. I think I've got it, like it nine. It has its own uh, call number on the, the library? <laughs> I don't, I don't know if it's actually called the disaster section, but yeah. Okay. I mean, I got, I, I just, I read the Mount St. Helens one. I read the Fukushima one. I've got a one on Benghazi. I've got a wildfire one. I've got uh, one about airplanes that disappeared over the course of history. So lots of good stuff I'm reading about. All right. Well, we're excited excited for next week. Yep. (laughs) Be good. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next time, I hope you guys stay safe. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Before we go, we want to leave you with a few ways to keep in touch. First of all, we hope you'll subscribe to our podcast and rate it and tell your friends so that other people can discover our content. But if you want to give more feedback or send us topics, suggestions, here's how you can keep in touch. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. You can email us at calamitypodcast at yahoo.com. You can visit our website at calamitypodcast.com. And you can support this awesome project on Patreon. We hope to hear from you soon.